I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today, we're in conversation with Travis Beckford, founder of The Future Is, manager and A&R man. We talk about sliding doors moments in his life, redemption, mentorship, the desire to provide inspiration and the nurturing of young talent. So I, I always had the hustler spirit and always had that kind of entrepreneurial spirit about me where I just wanted to win. I wanted to look after my family, I wanted to experience things and we didn't have much. And I was just one of those young guys who was just starving hungry to win. However, as with all our guests, we like to ask why they chose a career in the music industry. Here's what Travis had to say when we asked him. I feel like the industry or the music business, I should say, it chose me. It wasn't something that I necessarily went out looking for. My history and my background growing up was definitely more heavily into, into football. I come from a footballing family, although my brother, Marcy, Marcy Phonics, he was definitely one of the pioneers within, you know, the grime scene coming from West London. So I came from quite a negative background to get into where I am today. And if it wasn't for the experiences that I had growing up, getting into the circumstances that I was in, I would have never have gone and landed in the position I'm in now and being, you know, one of the young people that are championing the UK music scene. You know, growing up, I used to love music. I still do, but I used to love making music. I used to love going to the studio, rapping with the boys on, on the block, rapping with all my friends. And that was something that really was um, a release for all of us. That was one of our sort of gateways to, you know, mentally expressing ourselves. Many years later, I'd say probably 10 years after that experience, I landed in the music industry and it, was, it took me by surprise. It, as I said, it wasn't something that I went looking for. I didn't go to uni. I didn't go studying you know, how do you get into the industry? I didn't read any books about how to get into the industry. It kind of fell in into my path. And as I was working already at the BBC as a young apprentice and working in the radio space as well, not just TV, I managed to wiggle my way in. And ever since then, it's been about eight years now. I have to tell you, Travis, your story is so much more than just your time in the business. It's an unbelievably inspirational story. It's a story of redemption, but it's a story of what's possible if you really kind of are prepared to kind of go on that journey, look yourself in the eye, see where you've gone wrong, and then kind of come back and correct it. And that's why this conversation excites me so much, because I think there's so much that you can give in terms of the hope and just sharing the story of your journey and, and what you've been able to achieve. I mean, listen, during your time, you've worked at Motown, Two Town and Stella, Disturbing London, Modest, Ireland, Polydor, Epic and other places, plus events and things you've put on. But your journey starts way back. You know, initially, you know, you talk about your love of music, which is where you are now. But as you say, that wasn't your primary desire. It wasn't the, the biggest thing in your life, right? For sure, absolutely not. As I said, I come from a footballing background. You know, even my brother Marcy was very talented at football. My pups used to play ball. My big brother Jermaine, you know, he he's had an, an exceptional career within football and he's one of those stories that are similar to an Ian Wright or similar to a Jamie Vardy who started slightly later, but they managed to make it all the way to the top. To put it bluntly, I made a lot of mistakes when I was younger. I made a lot of bad decisions, but with the right intentions. So I, I always had the hustler spirit and always had that kind of entrepreneurial spirit about me where I just wanted to win. I wanted to look after my family. I wanted to experience things. And we didn't have much, do you know what I mean? We, did, we grew up with not many options. And I think most people who are in that predicament tend to make decisions based on their environment and based on what, you know, what they have access to and what they don't have access to. And I was just one of those young guys who was just starving hungry to win and ended up making a few bad decisions that led me in, in a lot of trouble. Um, and ever, ever since then, I've just been trying to correct it and just you know, move more official, move more proper and help, help people. You know, to get to where they want to get to where they want to get to. 
let's kind of try and do this as chronologically as possible because you had a passion for football I mean I've got to be honest when you said Jermaine I was like is that the Jermaine Beckford I'm thinking of the legend himself Big yeah. J Bex shout out to my yeah. bro I love that guy <laughs> so, so um, yeah but yeah we want to concentrate on you because you had talent you're big in the game tell it you mean because you had that moment where you were on that TV show and you know there was a moment for you right there, there was a moment I was always one foot in either the streets and one foot in football or in music. I was never really one dimensional. Like, this is what I do. This is what I'm known for doing. I've always been that guy who's been a bit like a hexagon. There's like six sides to me. So depending on how you treat me is the, is the side you're going to get. Do you know what I mean? But I think to take it all the way back, I mean, look, I grew up in West London, um, still from West London, very proud to be from here. I'm from West Dealing. Originally, um, I was born in Hanwell and I was quite eager to get out. So I was early. I was born in a bath. In, in my mum's house. There was me, my big sister Sabrina, um, my brother Eddie and myself with my mum. My pups was from originally out of town. I think he was from South London. I can't remember, but he grew up in Brooklyn as well. He grew up in Jamaica. So he was a, similar to me, had many different sides to him, bit of a rolling stone. But um, yeah, then we moved out of that house uh, in Hillyard Road, I think it was. And then we moved to a uh, council estate called Wimmore Park Estate. And that, I remember moving there, actually. It was very, very, very small, but I remember moving there. And it was, um, that estate was actually quite a big estate, but it was away from everybody. So it was kind of at the end of Hanwell, but the beginning of Southall, for those who know, they know, right next to Elon Hospital. But it was a great place to grow up because it was before the internet era. So, you know, it was before what we have today. All the kids were just outside playing, usual kind of setup. But we never, you know, most young kids, we didn't see... I mean, we saw a lot of stuff, but we didn't see the world the way that through the lens of an adult, I think, until we was a little bit older and we started to notice, you know, the drug dealing or the gang activities and the police coming, rare, 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 rare. I used to love playing football. My mum was a DJ as well. So she initially was from like South End side, Essex way, but then she moved to London and she was very big into music. So hats off to my mumsy because she was the one who gave me my sort of musical taste. She would play like... Um, Jumping Jack Frost to Mickey Finn, Gabrielle, Artful Dodger, Craig David, you know, she, even to Luther Vandross, Jamiroquai, like she was in her bag with that sound. Do you know what I mean? Um, my dad was slightly different. He was into a lot of the rap, a lot of reggae and R&B. He actually, he actually thought he was like Puff Daddy at one point. Like he used to dress the same with the chain out and everything. He thought he was a bad boy. It's funny. But um, he used to play a lot of Warren G and Biggie and Park, obviously, Buster, Nas. So whenever I used to go up to Manchester or Liverpool to go and see him, or he would come and pick me up for a few weeks on the holidays and things like that, that's the kind of music he was playing. And it would expose me to a whole new world, whereas my mum was more, you know, conservative, more like vibey, and his was a little bit more gritty, more what I resonated with from early. That was, that was the kind of the vibe. So in terms of education, you're in the estate. What did you want for your life at that point? Just football. That was it. There was, there was no other love, really. I mean, I loved, I enjoyed, I enjoyed music, don't get me wrong. I used to love it when my mum used to mix and I used to love the fact it brought everybody together because I'm that kind of, I'm like a vibes guy. So I like bringing people together and celebrating music and all different types of music. But football was me, man. That's, as soon as I reached about six or seven years old, I remember playing football all the time. And when we was growing up in our estate, the older boys who were like 15, 16 to 18, we used to have this thing called the cage, which was sort of in the centre part of, the, of, of our estate. Because there, there was two sides of our estate, which was separated in the middle. But everyone from all over the estate would meet there. So that was the hotspot next to like a community centre. We used to go there and kick ball. And our older lot used to say to us when we're like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 years old, you can't come in here unless you can do 100 kick-ups with both feet, big man. That was the energy. And you're, you're there like with your little football trying to get involved. And it's like, no, no, no. You have to be on your job. So from a young boy seeing that and getting that energy, that it just drove me to be better. So before school, after school, I'm playing ball. And I want to actually say one thing, big up to Chloe Kelly as well, because we're from this same estate. And um, she's one of the leading top girls for England. And we used to run around kicking ball together on our estate. And I'm just so proud of her. So I wanted to just throw that out there for what she's achieved like super inspirational for everybody reading through your bio one of the things you said in relation to your time kind of playing cage football was football became my refuge a sanctuary where dreams took flight amidst the challenges of the street that point of refuge why was that point of refuge so important for you at that point in time 
when we were super young. So when I was around my son's age and he's seven now, but we we was just sort of like, the world is the world, everything's cool. But when you get a little bit older, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, you start to notice things. The drug problem in my estate, one of my friend's mum, she was heavily you know, addicted to drugs. And I just started noticing things that I shouldn't have been noticing. And I started paying more attention to what was happening around me. That was our spot. That was our sort of safe haven. We, all the boys, you know, a couple young girls at like Chloe Kelly would come. But we'd just go in and kick wall and just talk and just get away from it all. Do you know what I'm saying? So that, that for me was, was super important and for, for all the young kids growing up on, around that time. That point of doing this Wayne Rooney TV programme, I mean, how did that come about? What did that mean to you? So after uh, I was about 11 when I moved out of the estate and I moved to West Ealing, that was um, my new home. And, you know, football, again, was something I was taking seriously, but not 100% serious. What were you taking seriously? There's a lot of things that are kind of, you know, there, you know, you've obviously got your music, you've got the street, you've got football. And each of them seems to have been a place of you kind of jump from one to the other. Was there anything where you kind of go, this is for me, and I, or did that never materialise? Not really, because after I, after I left uh, my estate, that's when life really got real. You know, all of the, I started jumping more into like the street, um, street activity and doing serious things. From when I was about 13 years old onwards, maybe to like 13 to about 12, 13 to about 14 me and as a few of the other boys that grew up, we was involved in a lot of serious stuff. We was acting as if we were 18 when we were 13. So if you saw us like a, a small group of young boys, we were serious about making money. That, that was at that point was like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I need to do, sell this, sell that to make money. And that's kind of how we grew up for a few years, like 100%. And then I'm, I, unfortunately, um, I got stabbed when I was 14. And my, at that point, my mum was saying to me, you know what, like, you've been not really focusing on what you should be focusing on. My pups was upset with the fact I was still in the streets at a young age. And he was just like, come and live with me up north. And I was very popular around my area. And I didn't necessarily want to leave. My sister was very sick at the time as well. And I didn't want to leave, leave the manor. I was thinking, this is my home. But I, I knew it was getting very dangerous. And there was a lot more serious things that were happening to people around me. And I, it was more of like... Jermaine was starting to do really well. He just left Harold Woolstone. He got signed to Leeds. Um, and, my, and my pups was like, look, it's a fresh start. You know, you're not running away from anything. You can always come back whenever you want to come back. But you need to start taking yourself seriously. Because I never did. For someone who was so um, confident and outgoing, and I still am, I had a very low self-worth. Like, my value of myself was quite low. All I wanted to do was make money and help provide for my family and X, Y, and Z. But when um, I moved up north for a year, my sister, as I said, Sabrina, bless her, she got very, very, very ill. And my mum called me and I had to come back to London. And that was when I was about 15. And I said to my, my, my dad, in a, you know, to cut a long story short, I'm going to stay in London now because this is, you know, family first type thing. So I was back in the mix straight away, Adrian. You know, I didn't really, I couldn't get into a school because of the timing of everything. Um, it was out of like, out of my hands, out of the local school's hands. My, the last school I was at, at Cardinal Wiseman, it's a brilliant school. They had all of the best footballers. Before I left, I was with them. And they said, you know, we want you to come back, but you're going to have to come back next year. So I kind of missed my window. But my, my pops called me to get to the Wayne Rooney bit. He called me when I was at my mum's house. He said, listen, Trevor, I've got this thing I've seen. It's called um, some Wayne Rooney street striker thing that I really want you to get involved in. And I was like, well, I didn't know what it was. I haven't played football that much in that period of time. But he said, look, just go down there and give it a crack and have a go. So I went down to the trials, ended up smashing the trials. I was coming first with all of the rankings and stuff we were doing. I felt like my confidence was building. I was like, actually, there might be an angle here. I know I'm 15 now, nearly 16, but there's an angle here where I could potentially, you know, get out of what I'm doing and play football. It was, a, it was Sky, Sky TV, but I ended up winning the whole competition, which took me at, you know, not my socks off because I was like, one, I never went looking for it. Two, I can't believe I've actually just done this. This was like a four-month period of filming, like mad intense pressure. Incredible, yeah. All these cameras, Wayne Rooney's there. And I'm talking to him on a level because I actually got in some, I got into some trouble before it happened. I had to go to court with my one of my best friends, like my brother, James. And then Rooney was like, Trav, you've been doing really well. How come you're, you're late to this thing and you missed the last trial? And I had to explain it. But then we touched, you know, we touched base on a real deep level at that point. Because then he was pulling me to the side and really rapping to me like, listen, I know you, 
you know, you're active and doing what you're doing, but you have an angle here and I'm trying to help you. He come from a similar background to me. All his friends come from a similar background. So he, we really understood each other. And um, yeah, we, we, we actually built a really good, good bond over that whole period. And so myself and Andy answer who to me is like a, he's like an uncle to me now. I always call him uncle Andy. So big up to um, Andy as well. But anyway, I ended up winning the competition. Um, thought my whole life was going to change. Jermaine's flying at this point, killing it with leads. I'm thinking this is my way out. You know, I'm back in school now. I'm doing well in school. I'm like the local star in the hood. Everywhere I go, it's going off. Like people want to take pictures. I can't believe it myself. <laughs> I'm going McDonald's with my mum. And this is a true story. The whole McDonald's in Ealing Broadway was ram of people waiting to take pictures of me. And I was so overwhelmed and like, what is going on here? I've never experienced this kind of thing before. And then I got paranoid because I thought everyone was watching me. Do you know what I mean? It was one of them ones. So I'm not used to that whole, whole fame thing. But we got through it anyway, and um, it was a blessing. I'm super proud of myself for, for channeling my energy into that and achieving something great. And then I went on to do some trials with Leeds United and was playing really well for them. I was playing with the 18s and reserves, and I remember being really nervous about that because I was quite slim and quite, you know, skinny. Um, and Jermaine was like, no, you're, you're going to be good. And the way that came about was another crazy story. Me and my pups went up to Four Pups, which is Leeds United's uh, training ground. And I think it was Simon Grayson, who was the manager of the first team. And he said, oh, you won that, that Rooney show, yeah? And I'm there watching Jermaine playing with my dad at like, training. It's early in the morning, freezing, Adrian, freezing. I'm there in, in Air Force Ones and my big jacket. And he's like, just sprint from here to like 30 yards and sprint back. I was like, my, I just looked at my dad like, what's this guy on about sprint there and back? Like, why? He said, just do it. So I went sprinting and I, and I'm, I was used to be really quick. And I came back. And then he whispered to his coach, said, yeah, get him into training tomorrow morning. And I remember looking at my dad, I was like, oh my God. You know, like it's like a film kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Jermaine, Jermaine never said nothing. Jermaine never said, oh, I'll give him a, give him a shot. He was like, where do I recognise you from? You was on that show, wasn't you? Da, 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 da. That's an incredible story. And then I started playing with Fabian Delph before he blew up and went to really? City okay. and we played together. And then I got injured and things happened, there's change of staff and I got released, come back to London. And then I was, again, back involved in street stuff. I was with my friends and we were smoking and drinking and doing all things we shouldn't have been doing. That was kind of the beginning of the end, really, of football. I just want to rewind a little bit, if I can, Travis, because there was something that you said at the top of that that I just wanted to explore a little bit further. And that was that thing about self-worth. You said at the beginning you didn't have a lot of self-worth about yourself. I felt like if I respected myself more when I was younger, I wouldn't have been so probably easily influenced. Because although the, the baseline of it all was that we're all broke, we need money. But that doesn't mean as a young boy, you should go out and sell drugs or sell hard drugs. Do you know what I mean? You should be patient and, you know, perhaps put your, your energy and your skill set into other things. No one forced me to do what I was doing. And I think that my mentality as a young boy was someone who was just very upset and just angry and just misguided and easily led astray by the 18 year olds 15 year olds when you're like 13 you know and the 21 year olds that are fully out here making more money than you can imagine you know you'd go to the local chicken shop and you've got the boys pulling out racks like 10 grand in cash and just to give the guy a tenner and you're thinking that's mad cool when you're like 13 and like yo here hold that here's a couple bills or come we all go footlocker and whatever it may be you know and it's, it's similar to how you may see, like, I don't want to say it it's a bit cliche, but similar to, like, how Top Boy, when they were filming it at the beginning, how they were kind of roping in the younger guys, you know, come, man, we'll protect you, we'll look after you, like, come, we'll get girls, we'll make money, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think if I had a little bit more self-worth and a bit more self-respect, perhaps I wouldn't have gone down that road. I, know I would have went a different way. But now I've got a lot more self-respect. I know I wouldn't put myself in a position like that again. There is that moment where the football is over, you're back on the streets. Every good or bad thing, depending on which side of the line you, you sit, comes to an end. And, you know, you find yourself having to kind of go away and do some hard time, right? Yeah, yeah. That was, um, I was, I, I went to, to college, I think, for a year in uh, West Thames and I was trying to get into that sports science. So I was definitely trying as well as, you know, me and my friends were doing whatever we were doing. But um, So let me stop you there. What was drawing you back? Was it just the ease of the money or was it just the fact you couldn't find a way out? Well, I did I did 
apply for jobs. It wasn't like I was just out here just giving up on life. Like I did try and I tried really hard. Like my mum was getting onto me, you know, my sister Sabrina getting onto me. Like, come, you can get a job. And, you know, Marcy would say, you know, just be patient. I know you're young, but you need to get your CV sorted out. And we did. You know, we did go to Westfield and all these places and try and look for jobs and it just didn't happen for me. It didn't happen quick enough for me. And I was still playing football with Hanwell Town, which was, I think it was semi-pro level at that point. And we was doing okay. But then things happened. There was an incident that happened on the pitch with both my team and another team. Uh, I think it was an FA Youth Cup game and there was like a massive fight on the pitch. I ended up getting banned for a year, Adrian. Imagine that. Really? Yeah, the FA wrote me yeah. a letter. I couldn't believe it. And I was the only one that got banned. And there was like 40 men on this pitch <laughs> having a proper go at each other. Like, I'm dead serious. Yeah, the, the coach of the other team, all the boys who were listening to this can vouch, yeah? There was a coach on the other team who punched my captain in his face, who was 17 or 18 at the time, gave him the massive, like, a massive black eye. And all, all my team just kicked off. We're like, no, we're not having it. So then things happen. And then after that, I was like, right, I'm going to college. I can't kick ball for a year. Let me see what happens. I'm still doing what I'm doing. And I ended up getting in trouble. I got caught and, yeah, sent to prison at 18. They, they um, sent me to Felton first, no bail, and said, you know, you're going to stay here until we figure out what we're going to do. And that's, that's kind of what happened. I was there for six months um, and that was a proper sobering, you know, reality like life slapped me in the face. I realised, right, I'm at real rock bottom now. That the only way is up. So talk me through that period, Travis, because, you know, there are going to be a lot of young young men, women that listen to this, you know, who and they're on their particular journeys. Can you get inside your head and go back to that point? And just what was that initial period for you like? And what was the driver to try and get yourself through? Well, number one, it was um, it was a new environment. So... It's going to sound weird, but time kind of flew quite quickly. So when you're new to something, you're just learning as you go along. It was difficult because obviously you're spending 23 hours a day by yourself. I'm cool with being by myself, don't get me wrong, but you're really just there by yourself. You're, you know, you've got to dig deep and look inward. I was in there as an 18-year-old. I, I saw a lot in there. Um, I heard a lot. And I had to just basically tell myself, that's it now. Whenever, whatever time they're going to give you, you better make sure when you come out, you're going to fix up because I ain't coming back here again. I turned 19 on the 14th and I got my sentence on the 16th of September. So two days after my 19th birthday, um, I went to a Crown Court and they sentenced me and my Cody. And um, yeah, initially it was a much long, longer sentence. They ended up, we ended up appealing it and whatever. And um, we got it down to, I think, six years and eight months. And I uh, ended up serving three years out of that. So from 18 to 21, I was definitely in a headspace of like, you've got to improve now, you've got to fix up, you've got to write down what's going on in your, in your head, make plans. And, you know, just I missed being home. You know, my son's mum, me and my son's mum were together before that happened. And then we separated. So that was kind of another thing where I was like, I wanted to get, when I come home, I wanted to get myself together, I wanted to get back with her and just fix up basically. So that was the only thing in my head was when you come home, make sure you're moving official and proper and you and whatever you do, whatever you fall into, just give it 100% and don't regret anything, but just give it 100% and see where it takes you. I think one of the things that you managed to do in there was that was that was your start. I mean, you met two inspirational people actually inside and they, am I right in saying the catalyst for the start of your journey? 100%. And I always big them up at every opportunity I can get because after I got my sentence, I got moved out of Felton, which was a young young man's prison and then I moved to a different prison in South East London called ISIS and I was there for two and a half years and that was real prison that's it was completely a different setup to Feltham it was you know like three floors it looked like an American jail it's huge two different sides to it and it was very 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 violent it was the, it was actually the I think they put it down recorded it as the most violent prison in that two-year period in the country which was crazy to be there but I met this guy called Jason Mitchell and uh Chris Chalet who were in the music sort of production and radio broadcasting. Because when you're in there, you can obviously pick what courses you want to do. And depending on what you want to do, some of the courses, whether it be for like cooking or bricklaying, and I had no interest in any of that. I wanted to get into, into um, sports or wanted to get into music. That was a non-negotiable for me. And I met Jason and he brought me in and he, uh, I believe he used to work at One Extra when it first started. Long story short, they, they really took time with me and they really supported me. They, they spoke positive things into me. 
And my headspace was a lot different to what it is now. I'm, I was a completely different person. And I didn't want to hear anything. You know, no one could tell me anything. I was just like, no, I'm here. I'm going to get on with what I need to get on with. F it. And they were like, no, you know, you need to change the way you're thinking. And you can do this music course and we'll teach you how to do music production. And I sort of opened up to them a lot more. And uh, they became like mentors and teachers and they weren't prison officers. They were like teachers, basically. And uh, Jason said to me, I'm doing really well with the radio broadcasting job that I had in there. And he brought in DJ Target. So that, again, was another eye-opener for me. He didn't have to do that. You know, he came into the prison. He knew he knew what he was stepping into. It wasn't a very safe environment. And he was um, just super cool, super blessed with everything. And we really chopped it up. And at that time, I think I was 18 or, or 19, or just turned 19. Yeah, we just we spoke about everything. I interviewed him. I used to have another um, part of the show called Hot 16s where people in other different prisons around the country who had access to radio broadcasting, they were sending, like, Hot 16 verses, like, people would write bars, and, and I would, like, judge them, because I was a rapper myself, you know? I'm I'm one of those guys, you know? And, uh, yeah. I used to pick different different rappers, both men and women, and the way it would work in, in, in prison would be, you'd go to Channel Zero, it'd be, like, um, on your TV, and it'd be, like, a grey screen with National Prison Radio on it, so it wasn't like anyone outside of prison can hear it. It's just on your on your TV, so all the man them would be hearing me on like TV playing all of these rhythms, Drake, Meek Mills, Little Wayne. Literally, like I'm Charlie Sloth or something. They were coming to me like, yo, I'll give you two tuners if you play that rhythm for me. And I was just like, it was hilarious. Um, it ended up really taking off and getting like tens of thousands of listeners. And then that was when Target came in. We really chopped it up and, and uh, he was talking about streaming and what the future of the industry is like. And I was asking him all these interesting questions that I genuinely was, you know, I was interested in music. And then he was like, what else do you do? Like, do you rap? And I rapped for him. And he was really impressed. He said, when you come home, link, we need to link up. And um, Doreen Lawrence wrote to me, bless her, rest in peace to Stephen every time. And she said to me, she's been hearing great things and wants to give me an opportunity to be one of the interns on the Stephen Lawrence program when I get released. So that was something I really wanted to just concentrate on. I stopped the fight in. I stopped all the madness in there that I was doing. And I focused on that. And that was my, um, that's what I put all my energy into, just making sure when I come home, I get that locked in, which I did, which was great. I mean, tell me about your self-worth and self-respect at that point, because suddenly now you are the man. There is real kudos around what you do. How did that make you feel during your time in there and doing what you were doing? Definitely very proud of myself and thankful, super grateful that I've been, I've landed in a space where I can do this course for, until I leave, basically. You know, there was times where I was like, all right, I'm going to do IT and maths and stuff, but, and for a couple of weeks and then I'll come back. But yeah, I was just very, very proud of myself. I knew I had a goal at this point. And I think anyone who has that feeling of being lost or, you know, it's not a good headspace to be in. So when you have a purpose, when you have a goal where you something you want to attain, that gives you energy, it gives you life, it gives you that spring in your step. You know what I'm saying? So I, I had that. And then when I got released, which was um, quite a, a weird moment for me because I kind of missed it in a weird way at the beginning. Like I missed all my friends that was there. I missed the boys I got close with. They were like family to me. But I knew that when I came home now, that had to just that chapter just got closed. And now it's all about levelling up and being, you know, grateful to Doreen and, and the BBC for taking a risk, I guess, for someone who's I'm gonna be on probation for another like three, four years. And they're gonna give me an opportunity to to learn and network and be in this corporate environment which I had zero experience with. And I was just away of all of these nutters and men who were <laughs> doing a lot, doing the most. Do you know what I mean? So it was a different world to me completely. It was quite a culture shock, I guess. I mean, so when you, you come out and because of the work you've done on NPR, you know, because of your talent, because of your dedication to the cause, because of the upturn in your work ethic and your self-respect and self-worth, you managed to get selected for this advanced apprenticeship program at the, at the BBC. That's correct, yeah. So I graduated the um, internship with the Stephen Lawrence program in the BBC. I think that was a 12-week program. So it was only three months. And then that was, well, without pay, it was kind of like we're going to give you an opportunity to learn a network and cover your travel and things like that, which, again, I'm super grateful for. But the, the apprenticeship scheme was a year-long apprenticeship scheme, which was paid. And it wasn't a lot of money. It was enough to get me by, you know, month by month. But it, it put me in different rooms, and I ended up really excelling at the BBC. And 
I got credited for working with Panorama and um, I was one of the runners and assistant camera assistants at um, a, a show, a film that they made called Don't Take My Baby, which went on, I believe, to win a BAFTA or it, it won awards. And my name was ringing bells in that space. I was working with BBC Three. I was working with The One Show. And uh, yeah, I was just basically active in there. And I used my time wisely. I wanted to get back into music. I bumped into Target. It was like a film literally outside Oxford Circus Station, outside Nike. We bumped into each other. I'm on my phone and he's on his phone and we just couldn't believe it. We just bumped into each other. He's like, last time I saw you, you was away. What are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm, I'm an apprentice at the BBC. And that was just like fate almost. And he was like, make sure you come and check me and brought me in, introduced me to everyone from Charlie Sloth and big up to Austin as well, because there was a point in time where a few people at one of the production companies or one of the sort of places within the BBC, they heard about where I came from and how I got to where I got to. Some of them were impressed and some of them clearly wasn't. And I was a little bit, you know, a bit taken back by it because I've already been there for a while. And um, I told Target, Target then, I believe, told Austin. Austin called me, Austin DeBar. And he was like, yo, I want you to come up and link up with me up in Radio One Extra. And that's when I first met like the Lisa Gambots of the world and met up with Ryan Newman, Jade Style, all these amazing people who really took to me straight away. And he just said, look, do you want to finish your apprenticeship scheme here? You'll get a job after, pattern up, do your thing and, and take it from there. And uh, forever grateful to, to Austin and everyone up there who, who took time out for me, for sure. You've been mentored and assisted by some incredibly talented people during your time. That doesn't happen lightly. It only happens because you have a talent. So it's, it's down to what you've done and the hard work and the dedication you've shown to your craft and your desire to kind of move away from where you were and obviously making moves and doing the right thing. But what were the type of things that you learned from those guys and how important has their support been over the years? And what does that what does it mean to you? I can't even put it into words. I think, I mean, I can put it into words, of course, but the, the emotion that comes from it, because again, I was, I was still in local, I was still around all my friends and things were happening and whatnot, but I was away from that, but still part of it, if that makes sense. And Austin, I remember one time me and Austin went for a walk. I don't know if he will, will remember this, but we went for a walk during our lunch. We just walked around central London for like an hour and a bit. And he was just speaking again, positive things into me, you know, like really giving me that energy. Like, look, you can do whatever you put your mind to. You don't have to go back to that. And I can see that you're stressing out of one or two things, but I can see you're incredibly energized about being here and you're excited to be here. So whatever I can help you with, I help you. Target was the same. Sarah Jane Crawford was the same. You know, there were so many great people who had my back, which gave me that confidence and made me feel really good about myself. And I, and I wanted to make them proud. And I still want to make them proud. Because although I'm 30 now, I still feel at times I shouldn't be here because I kind of fluked it. And these are the people who will remind me and say, no, you didn't fluke it. You, you made the right decisions. You put in the work. You put in the hours. You deserve to be here. You deserve to be at this table. So long story short, very grateful to all of them, for sure. We normally ask this question towards the end, but I really want to ask it now as you've raised that point. Do you believe that you do belong, that you, that you do deserve a seat at the table now? I do and I don't, again, at the same same time. Okay, let's break that down into two. First of all, why do you deserve a seat at the table? Well, I feel I deserve a seat because, again, I put in the hours and I put in the work. And I, made, and I did a lot that um, other people weren't necessarily doing or weren't doing as much as than me. Like I was networking with everybody and I was really taking the time to meet everyone on a personal level and adding value, throwing my ideas in there, speaking up in, in certain high pressure environments in meetings and saying my little two piece, trying to make an impact. And I think, you know, and that goes across the board in various different positions that I've had over the years, you know? And I've had a lot of different positions, but I feel like I've added value everywhere that I've gone. And then obviously the other half of it is that, you know, I'm just some young guy from, I still have that kind of little thing in my head where I'm just this young guy from West Ealing, man. Like, I, I don't know what these guys are talking about and maybe that, maybe that isn't for me and maybe that role isn't for me. And it's like a little bit of self-doubt, you know? I wasn't that guy who was bursting out the gate, screaming, I'm the best. I was kind of in the background and humble with it. You know what I mean? So now I've got to this point where I feel, you know, 90% of me is like, yeah, I am ready to, you know, level up in different areas and be present. Whereas if you asked me a few years ago, it was a little bit more shaky at times. It's like second guessing yourself and thinking you are 
you know, you are ready when you're not maybe ready, you know, but it's just a process, isn't it? Really? It's a journey. A hundred percent. And, you know, your journey as as I said at the top of this, Travis, is a remarkable one. That's why your career is one thing, but what you've managed to achieve and what you've got, you know, what you've gone beyond to achieve, I think is probably more important about talking about the jobs you've had. I mean, so, you know, it's 2014, you've, you're out, you've, you've been working on One Extra, you've been mentored, you've worked with some incredible people, Austin, Ryan, Target's there as, as, your, as your support network. You've got Danny over, Danny Jones, right, over at BBC as well, an incredible executive who you've got in your corner. At what point do you think that I need to give back? Because I think this for me is the bit that is super impressive and, you know, it's, it blows me away. So talk to us about the thought of what you wanted to do and why you wanted to do it and where that took you. Just to rewind just a little bit, when I was working at, because um, this this part of the story, of my story, I always find it quite like heartwarming because I was working with um, a woman called Tamara Howe at Business Affairs and Commissioning. And I was like a young guy, obviously fresh out of prison, part of my um, internship and all the rest of it at the BBC. But there was this, this woman of colour. She reminded me of Halle Berry. She was just a boss. Like she brought her own energy into every room. <laughs> and in business affairs and commissioning, you could imagine everyone's like middle-aged white people. So I'm in there with like my Jordans on, my hoodie, feeling like way, way, way out of my depth, but just being myself, listening and learning as you do. And um, on my lunch breaks, I used to write a lot of lyrics and, you know, make music in my head and put on beats and whatever, whatever. And she pulled me to the side and she said, oh, Travis, what? what are you doing? Every time I see you on your lunch break, you're sitting in a corner and you're writing on paper. What are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm writing bars and whatever, whatever. And she said, um, if you've got an interest in music, you should chase that and not necessarily be in, in TV. And I said, no, I'm grateful to be here. You know, Doreen put me on. I don't want to fulfill what I said I was going to do and, and do the honourable thing. And she said, look, I'm going to get my brother to speak to you because I really like you and I think you're going to have a bright future and spoke very positive about me and whatnot. So I was like, all right, cool, love. I get a phone call about maybe two or three days later and it's Darkest, right? So you can imagine Darkest with <laughs> a big ball of energy. The guy is saying to me, he's like, hello, yeah, is that Travis, is it? And I'm like, yes, Travis, so who's speaking? The number's not saved, X, Y, and Z. And he's like, yeah, listen, um, my sister tomorrow, she's telling me a lot of positive things about you. And, you know, I heard about your past and all that, but forget about all of that. You're home now. I want to meet you. So come and meet me down. The-. And he just went off on a tangent for about 30 seconds and, and then hung up. So I'm thinking, who is this guy <laughs> calling my phone, just speaking really loudly and aggressively, but in a positive way? I didn't even know who it was. And about an hour later, I get an email, and it's his, his assistant saying, our darkest really wants to, to see you and come down to High Street Kensington and all the rest of it. So I'm looking on my, on my phone like, who's this darkest guy? <laughs> and, and I Googled it, and I called Marcy straight away, and he can vouch because I was a bit like, mm. And maybe I was like a little bit too laxed about the whole situation. <laughs> and I saw he worked with Amy and he's the president of Island Records. And now I'm like, rah, that's it now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it into the big league. Do you know what I mean? And um <laughs> so I go to meet him. And uh Benny Scars is a good like friend of me and my brother. He's that I always call him like my big bro, and I love and appreciate I love him. Benny. And he, everyone who knows about the universal building, they had in the, in the offices, they had like glass. In That's every right. office, the darkest is there with his his Gucci trainers, the high boot ones, all blacked out, and he's got his feet on the table. So he took his shoes off, crossed his crossed his feet, and he's like, "All right, Trav, listen, tell me your story." Similar to like now, he's like, "Come on, I'm really interested about you. You know what darkest is like? All this energy, and he made me feel super comfortable and just relaxed." And Benny walked in. He's like, "Trav, I can't believe it. You're back now." Da-da. And then we reconnected and. <laughs> It just felt really natural and genuine. And then Darkus was like, I want to give you a job as an A&R. And I said, well, the BBC have put me on. I can't turn my back on them. I can't turn my back on Doreen. It's a great opportunity, but just allow it for now. Maybe perhaps in the future we can do something. And he respected that. And I played him some music and things and he really liked my ear. So um, to kind of fast forward, when I when I left One Extra, at the same time Austin left um, to join Spotify. Spotify, yeah. And I... I um, so I got I got an email when I was at One Extra and it was from Sony. And they said, look, we're looking to, for new A&Rs. Your name has come up. There's an internship or something like that. And I called Benny. I was like, hey, Benny, what's this thing about A&R? And is that what you do? What is an A&R? I didn't even know. 
And he was like, yeah, Travis, what's happening? And then I was like, yeah, the Sony have emailed me on my um, BBC email and just asked me to come in for an interview. And he was like, yeah, take it, take it, take it. And I, I was sitting directly across Austin. So he's literally, it's like a two-man desk. And I went around the corner of the computer. I said, hey, hey Austin, I think he's like trying to give me a job, you know? And he was like, do it. That, that's, that's right up your street. You know, you're with the playlist management team. That's great. You've got great experience and connection. Get into music. And then I took the, the, the interview, so big up to Dougie Bruce every time, the first guy who gave me an opportunity in music, and I'm super grateful for him forever. I took the meeting, I uh, got the internship with Sony at Epic Records. He gave me the job after like three months. He's like, don't worry about that, you're here. And that was my first introduction. And, and to make it extra special, my son Remy was born on my first day at Epic Records. Amazing. So I'm expecting a you. You know, I'm still a youth, you know, I'm like 20, 22 <laughs> at the time. My girlfriend's pregnant. I'm about to move into my own house and all these things are happening. And yes, Remy was born on my first day. So that was the 16th of January, 2016. What a time. When you look back on that particular day now, but then cast it back to where you were, what did that make you feel on that particular point, Dame I cried in the car when I got the phone call, serious. like Because I felt like I'm so far removed now from where I was. And it wasn't like I was like bawling in a car, but I shed a tear. Yeah, I was yeah, so yeah. happy. I was just like, I've never, I never thought, if you asked me this a year ago and I'm in there with all these guys who are serious people, they're young people, but they're serious people. They're in there for like murder cases and all sorts. You, I would not have believed you, even though I was speaking it into existence and saying to my friends and family on visits, you know, Marcy was probably the only one that believed me when I used to say, yeah, I'm going to come home, I'm going to get into music and I want to get into a record label. And he was like, yeah, 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 you can do it, bro. My other friends, even up until now, are like, bro, I thought you was crazy the way you used to speak on those visits. I thought you was losing your mind. And then I made it happen. So it was like a sense of relief, but a new sense of pressure and urgency to win because I have my son now and I'm the only A&R at that age group who's got a child and on probation and got all these different stresses that are happening. So I'm just, everything's on like 100, like I'm trying to win. And um, I was super proud, yeah, super proud of myself and how far I'd come in that period of time for sure. So you're, you're at Epic. What's next for you? So I was at Epic for a year, but then at, towards the end of the year, my world kind of got flipped on its head because obviously the, the gaffer got relieved of his duties. I think Mr. Eiley yeah. was having, um, well, he, he, he was definitely moving things around in 2016, put it that way. And um, Colin, who was at RCA, Colin... He was Colin just, Barlow. Uh, Colin Barlow, yeah. He was like, look, because basically when DB got relieved and he was moving on, I think he was about to join Universal Pub, you know, I, I was in limbo because I've you know, got my own flat now. I've put 100% into music. I've got a son who's only one. I felt all this pressure. So um, I spoke to a few different people and I spoke to Benny and I went to Jamaica with my girlfriend at the time, my son's mum. And um, when I came back, imagine I came back, Adrian, to, to Sony around Christmas time to get my notebooks and all these things I had in my desk and stuff. And the whole of Epic Record Records was gone. It was just literally cleaned out. So I'm going up to HR like, yo, where's my notebooks? Where's all my, that's all my contacts. And they basically, the cleaners or whoever threw it all out. So um, I had to start from literally zero. Obviously I knew enough people, I knew everyone, but I had contacts from all around the world and people whose names I wouldn't remember, but their emails were there. And I was just very frustrated. And I spoke to my mentor, Danny Cohen, and he, he was upset about the situation and just said, look, I'm going to introduce you to a few people and just see how it goes. Go and meet them. And then I got an email from, from David Joseph. And I, again, didn't really know who David Joseph was. I knew what the, the, who the A&Rs were, managers, booking agents, lawyers, but I was still very, very green to A&R. And then David hit me up and he was like, look, um, you've come highly recommended. I want to I see you and spend some time with you um, and just have a chat. And I obviously found out who he was. And I was like, oh, this is dope. I told Benny. And then I had another email from Max Lusada. And he said the same thing. So now it's going from me trying to get a job back in the industry. No one's trying to pat me and bring me in. <laughs> so a lot of people now saying, oh, what, what are you Come doing? Come and sit down. Where, 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 you know how the game goes, man. <laughs> you know more than anyone. <laughs> and and uh, anyway, long story short, both guys are real gentlemen. I got a lot of love and time for them. And I ended up going to uh, Polydor. So big up to Ben Mortimer. Big up to Tom. Again, they gave me a great opportunity. I was super grateful to be 
in a space where the label was much bigger than Epic. Our team at Epic were like 15 people. And Polydor is still one of the best labels in the country, hands down. It's like 70 people, 70 odd people, 50 people, whatever it is. And um, my decision was made um, to join them because I met Kendrick Lamar before when I was at the BBC, right? But this happened in passing. And I used to listen to Good Kid, Mad City. It's my favourite rap album ever. Yeah, and that was my second year in prison, right? But the girl Francis who worked in the door, you know, like there's... um. Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. what they call it. Yes. For the BBC, you know, there's a separate little bit where you go up, where you go up. Yeah, we got to One Extra Radio once. Anyway, she messaged me when I was working at the uh, the One Show. She's like, Trav, guess who's coming in today? It's Kendrick. And she knew because I used to sit on the door and tick people's names off and work in the green room and all the rest of it. So when he's walked in anyway, I was like, I'm going to be there. I just said, look, I don't want a picture. I don't want to be that guy. I just want to say to you that your album really helped to change my perspective and it really helped carry me through that period of time when I was away. And I don't want to say I'm grateful for that. I think you're a great artist and all the rest of it. Not begging it, but just showing love. You know what I'm saying? And he really took to me. He was like, yeah, I'm K-Dot, all the rest of it. And then fast forward, you know, he's like, look, I've got a good feeling about you and all the rest of all that gassing me up. And that's the reason I joined Polydor, because <laughs> he was part of Interscope, right. which sister company yeah. is Polydor. So I, I went there and that was a great time. Uh, semi-frustrated with a few things. I brought in quite a few sick acts and didn't get to sign them. And my friends, Priye and Lunik, and they're getting the deals. You know what I mean? They're winning, they're getting promotions. And I'm sitting there like... Oh, that could have been God. me. That, that could have been, been me. me. I told you that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it's all love, man. Your time comes and your time comes. You know what I'm saying? So I'm proud of them boys as well. And um, yeah, anyway, it was sick. And then Shah Grant was at Modest Management. They were reaching out to me since I was at Epic. And then I moved on from Polydor. Ben didn't want me to leave and he told me and I was a bit gutted towards the end. But while we're on the topic of Polydor, I want to shout out to Spinksy. Obviously, Zeon, that's my guy. Love that guy. Craig Shardlow, shout out to Gary Pape. Shout out to everyone that was there. You know what I'm saying? It was a great, great company and very successful. Um, big A&R team. So it kind of had me in the headspace of, right, well, I'm not getting to sign what I want yet. I've been here for like a year and a bit. These guys are offering me a lot more money. I get to learn about publishing, management. You know, it's a different new journey for me. You know what I'm saying? So um, I took that opportunity and worked with, with Modest for a year. And that was dope as well. But Shah, she left me in a lurch, though. I can't lie, because she yeah. went on to go to join BMG. BMG and I was kind of yeah. gutted because that's like my big sis. I wanted to work with her. <laughs> but big up to Shah too, man. I love her. But um, yeah, shout out to Modest. They were great. Worked with Little Mix and Raksu. And I was doing that publishing stuff and but again the vision didn't necessarily align completely you know I was trying to sign J5 and Nate Smalls and they were still very much in a pop headspace so I took a bit of a break after that did some traveling um spent more time with my son and yeah just started creating a future is so that's kind of a long-winded full circle moment explaining how I got to the point of giving back and it was myself and my guy, Ashley Cox, who manages Aston Rudy and Tamira. Yeah, and I know Ashley. That's my yeah. bro, yeah. And um, we sat down together and we come up with the futurist together. It's a huge part of your story. It should be a huge part of our business and people need to know more about it and what it means and what you've given to it and what it's giving to other people. So don't be shy about taking your time and really telling the world about the futurist. It's a really important piece of information. Appreciate that. So, um, yeah, I mean, as I said, Ashley and I, we, we um, sat down one time and said, look, there's a few people, we we were very observant and I saw that Priye was doing very well with strawberries and cream. And I was like thinking, okay, there's people out here that are doing other things as well as their jobs, adding more value. So I, I looked around and I sat down with Ashley and said, why don't we just start putting on like club nights and just putting on talent that we like? Because we both got, a really good eye for like looking at talent really early and um yeah so long story short we, we come up with the futures and I said why don't we have something between a mix of like a I love live and ultimate seminar and that's how it started and the first one we ever did was at the hospital club and I'm gutted they shut that place down because that Great was a public venue historic so big up to JJ as well he was the the venue manager and gave us the shot but I put together the, the panel and it had some amazing people. We had Sarah Jane Crawford as the, the presenter. We had Millie, um, who was uh, A&R at the time. We had Rachel from YPR, Jasmine Dottiwala, Lucy Francis. We had Lola Young performing. 
Sarah T. Smith was on there. It was a sick panel for women. And it was called, I called it The Future is Female because I genuinely thought that the industry's changing. It's good to see women coming in the game now and patterning 100%. up and getting opportunities because it is very male-dominated at the same time. And um, I just said to Ash, I just want to keep it as the future is and we can change it to whatever, you know, have it more like conceptually, so, or what conceptual, whatever the word is, but we can have it as, you know, say the future is A&R, the future is management and whatever. So it really blew up and it took off and all, all of my emails started popping off and we started progressing Ashley wanted to focus more on Tamira and Aston Rudy and in the management space. So I just said, cool, I'm going to run with it because I feel like this is something that's important. And ended up putting on more events. We did some really, really dope ones at White City House. And then it started to grow again. Tape reached out. We did one, I think it was 400 and something people came down. We had Abby performing, Ray's little sister, and Lauren Keane as well. Big up to Paul every time. But... Yeah, that was dope. And, it, and we just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. My brother Marcy was involved in it. Ash would dip in and out of it. And it would just start to kind of take its own kind of form, that like snowball effect. And from then went on to work with the Royal Albert Hall, worked with Black Music Coalition, TikTok, worked with Nike. And in the midst of all of this, I was still secretly trying to get a job in, in the industry after, you know, being at Modest and whatnot. I left it like a, nearly a year and I was just doing the futurist stuff. And then that's when Dummy hit me up and um, and G Fresh and, and T. And was like, look, we've got an opportunity here. We want to sit down and talk to you. And the future is we're still growing and building and putting on for new artists, putting on celebrating black culture. Most of the people who've been on the panels have been of, you know, people of colour. And I, I really wanted to specifically target that because I felt like there's so many great people who look like me and look like you. And not many people know who they are. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't a me thing. It was a we thing and just kept kept building it. And now I'm in a space where I'm really going to concentrate on that and continue to push it. But yeah, the future is has been has been a has been a serious blessing for me and I love it. And I can't wait to share with the world all the plans that we've got and things I've been secretly working on for the last six months or so. You talk about the seminars, you talk about the events, but, you know, you're seriously impacting and empowering and informing the next generation of talent and the next generation of professionals as well. How are you doing that? And and what are the tools you're arming them with to make them better executives or at least let them know what they're entering into? I guess there's two sides to that. But the first side would be, would be just to help give them an avenue or somewhere to go where they can learn from the real ones in the industry. And then that marries well with celebrating those who are the real ones in the industry. Don't get me wrong, 98% of the people in the music industry I really get along with. Um, and, you know, I love everyone and whatnot, but it was definitely the two of those points and giving back in a sense where I wish I kind of had something like that when I got into the industry, because I got into the industry super green and late, you know, I was 23. I had no idea what A&R was, you know, and Benny's a good friend of mine. I didn't even know what he'd done. Do you know what I mean? So these people come and spend time and their own time and talk about their journey and their stories and the things you should do and things you should probably perhaps shouldn't do. And it's something that's been incredible. It's been like six years now, maybe six and a half years of just giving back, giving back. And that, again, has turned into me using my A&R ear where I said to Marcy, we went out for dinner and I said to him a couple of years ago, I was like, why, why, don't, why don't I put together something like a writing camp with all of the performers that we've had and they get, they get to work with more established writers and producers, right? And I reached out to a bunch of different studios and they were literally just stringing me along for time. They were just telling me what I wanted to hear, weren't really giving me any sort of end, end result or dates and times and whatnot. And I was doing this all independently as well. And then I got connected with um, Alice, who works down at the church studios. And she's just been incredible. Like, you know, she she put us on. We did some really good business. We done a few writing camps together independently. And that was when Shurav hit me up. And he was like, what you're doing is incredible. So big up to Shurav, much love. And um, I said to him, I was like, listen, you need to come down here because there's this girl called Lauren, Lauren Keane. And obviously everyone knows Abby at this point and Ray, who's obviously a superstar. But there's another sister. There's four daughters in total, actually, that Paul's got. You've got Rachel, you've got obviously Abby and Lauren. And he came down and I introduced him and he ended up signing Lauren. And now she's got bangers and hits. Abby's just got a global deal with Epic. 
Ray's doing Ray's thing, shining. And it just felt like really the right thing to do to keep connecting people and giving people opportunities. And Motown reached out, Rob hit me up. He's like, I love what you're doing. Let's do it together. I can fund it. And Universal and David Joseph knows about it. And all of these cool things were happening. And then, um, yeah, we, we put on a, a camp for 50 women um, for over a two or three day period, which has never been done before. And that was dope, man, at the church studios. And that was dope. So big up to everyone involved, man. It was sick. Trust me. So where do you go next with the futures, and where do where do you go next to help empower the next set of executives? What are your ambitions in that field, Travis? What do you want to do? I would really like to take it to a much um, bigger stage. So I've been having conversations recently about you know more seats, bigger venues, you know more more or less just helping to amplify the vision. And I've been blessed enough to have people like massive brands reach out. You know I've I've been working with Nike. You know, Sony have reached out. So big up to Sony and they're letting us use their their venue space because it's for free. You know, it is actually for free for young people to come and listen and learn and for me to put on for new artists. Um, and yeah, like we just keep pushing it bit by bit, bit by bit, more content. I might even jump into the podcast space. Not entirely sure yet. Easy, easy. Fall back, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely in the, in the headspace of just doing more because I, I took myself out of my comfort zone and done a lot of public speaking and was actually hosting these events in front of hundreds of people at Box Park and all the rest of it. And people are like, oh, you know, you're a natural, you can really do this and what, what have you. So... That's kind of where Nike reached out and I brought in, you know, Nada and Chucky and a couple of dope people and tried to just help where I can, add value to the culture, celebrate what we got, man, because it's, 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 it's amazing what's happening right now. It's actually incredible. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and what about you? I mean, obviously you've got the future, but, you know, you have a career. I'm sure your personal ambition still drives you, trying to get in the business. I know, obviously, you've had one position recently. That's that's ended. You're moving on, looking at what is the next chapter. What do you want for Travis Beckford? What what's the, what's the drive and ambition for you, personally? I think just to keep keep moving in the right direction, keep leveling up. Most recently, my most recent role was with ASCAP. I was the associate director there for the UK and Europe. But I feel like the vision wasn't necessarily aligning with my overall goal. You know, grateful for the opportunity to work with them. So obviously, thank you to Simon and David and Angela, the rest of the team and what have you. But they didn't necessarily want me working with a Nike or with a, with a, the Futurist. So for me, something that I've built over a long period of time wasn't necessarily something I wanted to turn my back on. And wishing them all the, all the best moving forward and all the rest of it. But, you know, I, I just want to keep on developing my skills. I've met so many great people. I'm going to maybe looking to getting back into A&R in a little bit. Um, it depends on the role. I feel like it has to be a bit flexible because I don't want to stop working with the futurists and building that. And I feel like, yeah, just, just getting back into that, you know. I've worked with great people. Shout out to, to Dummy, G Fresh. Shout out to Tiny. You know, shout out to all of the labels that have given me an opportunity, all of the people that believed in me. I'm super grateful for them all. We've had some, some dope success. We've signed some hits. We've brought in some people that, you know, have gone on to win Grammys and have gone gone platinum and gold and silver and all of these sick things that I would never have imagined in, in my wildest dreams sitting in Feltham and Isis X amount of years ago that I'll be even in the room having a conversation about who we should sign or who's the next to come up and talking big money, you know, way more money than that we ever made in, in, in the streets. I'm talking M's. You know, and it's it's incredible. It's incredible to like be part of that and be part of be part of the conversation. You know, I'm grateful. The other thing we should celebrate, well, obviously, twenty twenty two. You were part of the Power Up program as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big up to Ben. Big up to PRS. Big up Power Up. It was sick. It was sick. An incredible moment for you as well. Yeah, I mean, it was nice to get recognised as well. Um, I've known Ben for a long time. Shout out to Ben, and. You know, I remember when he was rolling with Nux at the beginning and um, I found Nux when I was working at Epic and I remember raving about him. He was going uni at the time, he'll even tell you. And I was like, yeah, this, this guy's the future. And Ben used to come to the, to the meetings and I tried to sign him at Polydor. It didn't happen. And I went upstairs, probably get in trouble for this now, I went upstairs and I told Twin, I was like, listen, mate, yeah, you need to sign this guy, Nux. There's Mira May. There's enough people that are popping. 
you know, there's 23 unofficial. I can pattern it, loop you all in with them. And, and shout out to Twin because he went and done the deals and he got it done and they had massive success. And yeah, it was, it was a cool time. But yeah, shout out to Ben, shout out to PRS, everyone that has supported me, JPL. There's, a, there's actually a bunch of names of people that I actually want to shout out because I feel like this, this is the first time I've ever done any public speaking and, and shared the story in such depth. You know what I mean? Shout them out because I think those people that have been there, that have been had your back, that have been supportive, please recognise them because it's really important that they know that, that you appreciate. Definitely. I always give everyone their flowers every, anyway, you know what I mean? Anytime I see anyone, but... Including including your son too. So shout out to Ash, man. That's my guy. But, you know, Bless. first and foremost, I wanted to say a massive um, shout out to my guy, Jamal Edwards, because the, the the story with that is a lot a lot deeper than people think. He used to come to the hood back in the day when we were all on the block rapping, doing our thing and film everybody. And he was like speaking again, as I always say, speaking positive things to all the boys. Like, no, you lot got talent, man. And to see where he took it with SB and unfortunately passing away, broke my heart, like for real. And I wanted to just have that moment for him. But as well as people like my brother Marcy, because Marcy's a different animal. You know, he's an entrepreneur. He gave me that hustler spirit. He came up doing sets with Wiley, Kano, Tinchy Strider. I used to jump out my window at 13 years old and go link up with 40 of the boys to go chew the rose because DJ Quincy's got it popping down there. And we used to sneak in, believe me, and we used to start rapping. And I could tell you a story. We went in there rapping one time and everyone's like, who are these youths? They're like 13, 14. There's enough of us, yeah? And um, Marcy did his set and he's like, what are you doing here? They're like, started bugging out on me. And anyway, we started raving. We got, you know how it goes. And then Kano walks in with his hoodie on and then all you hear is, and everyone went mad. That was, I went... I had to sneak back in the house. My mom said, what happened to your voice? My voice is gone. It was all happening. But anyway, um, shout out to Marcy. Love you, bro. Benny Scars, my inspiration. I remember when he was driving his two-door smart car, when he first told me about him looking to leave Ireland and, you know, work with Dave. He never told me who it was. He said, I've got someone who's I remember special. I as well, yeah. So shout out to Dave, shout out to Just, shout out to everyone at Neighbourhood. Benny, love you, bro. Austin, changed my life. Always appreciate him. Darkest Bees, Ryan Newman, Semtex, Big Up The Twins, Jackie Davison, thank you for everything. Amber Davis, Lucy Francis, Zion and Rep, shout out to YBs. This guy's killing it with Sentry right now. And the world <laughs> needs to know that. This, he, what he's done, game changer. And, and Sentry's literally down like 10 minutes down the road from me in Shepherd's Bush, isn't it? Um, so yeah, shout out to him. Colin, Bastar, Skepta, Buck and Gig, Sincere, Mark, Henry and Nux, Stormy, Shout out to Big Bro, shout out to Glenn and Ricky, Jin Jin, Michelle at PRS, shout out to Mo and Kilo, Patrick, Gossa, Prie, Lloyd, Lunik and Dan, Chris and Mike's the problem children, you know who they are, Seb Smith, <laughs> BMC, Jamie Stinks again, my guy Collar, we was in prison together and now he's managing Harry Pinero, winning, super proud of him, super proud of Glenn, Zaza, Kamali, Shanice, she's from the same hood as me and she's killing it right now, Hamish Harris, Gavin Nim, just everyone who's ever supported me or the future is, I actually love you and I appreciate you because who would have thought it would have made it this far and there's still a million things I could talk about but I don't want to keep you lot too much time, you know what I mean? You know what? First of all, there's never been a man who's come on with his shout outs ready to go like that, so big up on you that's preparation, which I respect. And if, and if I've forgotten anyone, it ain't personal. Like, I've been busy and whatever, but I love everyone who supported me. Shout to everyone who's been on my panels, anyone who's performed, all the managers, the booking agents, anyone who supported The Future Is, anyone who supported me through every difficult stage. And there's been many. There's been many blessings, but there's been many hurdles. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to becoming a new and, and improved Travis with whatever the, the next venture is, whatever I do next, so... The energy's high and I'm feeling really good about the rest of the year, for real. Travis, I've got to say, genuinely, I mean, sitting down, reading your bio, having connected with you a few months ago, that first, when we had that first conversation, I was like, I need to speak to this young man on the podcast because if ever there was someone who's deserving to have their story told, who we need to expose to a wider audience, but also to show what is what is possible, it was you. And thank you, man. Appreciate that. You know, generally emotional about kind of hearing your journey, but super proud of what you've managed to achieve. The fact that you've overcome what was adversity and what may have 
you know, taken other people in, into a different area, but you've taken that with great heart, great skill, great dedication, great talent, great desire, with an incredible work ethic and kind of go, you know what? I can do better, but not only have you gone on and done better for yourself, but you're putting on other you're putting other people on as well, and that is what we're all about. And you can say a lot more because you know what, there will be another opportunity because we we definitely need at some point to come back, revisit, and see where you are because you, know, to you, you are you and a lot of those other guys. You are you are the future. You are leading the way. Keep your light shining bright, my friend, because, you know, there are many people that need to follow you. So from Did You Know, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for being you and keep on doing it. It's been an absolute pleasure to kind of hear your story. Thank you. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. I'm Adrian Sykes, and thanks for listening to Did You Know, a Downstreet production. Our thanks to Travis for sharing his stories and also to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, to our producer, Cass Denton, to Ella Ruby on the socials, and to Vega Brothers for our theme music. Big thanks as ever to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You can now apply to be mentored by the guests of the DigiNo podcast. Please check out the show's website, www digitalpodcast.com or one word for all the information did you know is available wherever you get your podcasts make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode and if you've enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five star review and make sure that you look out for our next episode where I'll be in conversation with manager Aaron Hercules about his career to date. We're a very musical family. My neighbours was Mikey from Culture Club. So I kind of watched the whole formation of Culture Club play out in front of me pretty much because we lived on the same street. I guess it was a destined for me to, to be involved and I kind of wanted to find out more about it and get into the nitty gritty of how songs were made. This was... Did you know? Until the next time.